The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 23. We will only be reading verses 23 and 24 this morning. Um, That's an unusually short Old Covenant reading. But these words are weighty and important for us to take to heart. Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 23. The word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast in his might, not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. Please turn with me to our New Covenant reading, which is the the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. We'll be reading through verse 30 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. Matthew, chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. The word of our God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Please keep your place here in the gospel according to Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. If God is sovereign, why pray? Uh, That's the way that post-enlightenment Westerners tend to approach the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human freedom and responsibility. And so we ask, if God is sovereign, why pray? Now, a perfectly good answer to that question is, why pray if he's not? I mean, why give praise and thanks to a God who didn't do anything? And why bring your requests before a God who's not able to do anything about them? Now, a great deal more can be said than that. What I want you to see this morning is that although that's the common way that post-enlightenment Westerners tend to address this issue, it is not the way it's addressed in the Bible. In the Bible, the sovereignty of God is regularly, commonly, almost always presented as a reason to praise our Father in heaven and a reason for us, his people, to have confidence and assurance and peace here on earth. Correspondingly, from Genesis to Revelation, 
God's word clearly assumes that human beings, that's you and I, are fully responsible for how we respond to his revelation. The word of God teaches both of these important truths, and as it does in this morning's passage, it normally teaches them together. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, praise to the author of history. Second, praise to the one mediator between God and man. And third, the mediator's gracious invitation. Let me give those to you once again. First, praise to the author of history. Second, praise to the one mediator between God and man. And third, the mediator's gracious invitation. We begin with praise to the author of history. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Uh, Jesus has just fired a barrage of condemnations toward the cities and towns of Galilee. Uh, We call these oracles of woe. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Indeed, Jesus goes on to tell his adopted hometown of Capernaum that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for that town. Why? Because they had so much greater revelation. Jesus had gone around. The Son of God himself had taught them, and they had seen the mighty miracles that he was doing. The principle is both simple and pointed. To whom much is given, much is required. Quite clearly, Jesus was holding these unbelievers, which is the mass of people in Galilee, fully responsible for not embracing him and his teaching. And yet, strikingly, it is not the crowds but Jesus who then raises the issue of God's sovereignty and whether or not these people are believing. And Jesus does not raise this issue of his father's sovereignty is a question. He raises it as a fact and a cause for praise. Our Lord prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. We're reminded here of that incredibly intimate relationship that Jesus has with his father and the relationship he had since before time began. But we are also reminded of the absolute sovereignty of his father. Jesus subscribes to his father the fact that his father is completely in control of everything. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, I've called this section praise to the author of history because I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that when Jesus describes to his father that he's Lord of heaven and earth, he only means of inanimate things. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that his father is writing the story of history, including determining 
who is going to have their eyes open to believe the gospel and who he is going to harden in their unbelief. Isn't that what he says? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Clearly, Jesus is not only thinking that the Father is the one that's determining who's going to understand, he's praising him for it. Uh, By the way, it'd probably be helpful for you to understand that most of the other modern translations, uh, such as the New International Version, the Christian Standard Bible, and the New American Standard Bible, all say, I praise you rather than I thank you. Uh, Those are pretty close to each other, so it's not a big problem. Uh, But actually, this word has the idea of declaring something. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's commonly used for declaring something that God should be praised for. Uh, I think, therefore, this is actually the better translation. I praise you. See, Jesus isn't saying, boy, I'm reluctant to proclaim that the reason why so many people are not believing me as I go about in my ministry has God involved with it. God's not absent. He's hardening the people in their unbelief while he's opening the eyes of a remnant. And that is a reason to give God praise. Uh, Why? I mean, Jesus is praising his Father, so we know it's We know it's good, but why is that a reason to praise the Father? Well, think of God as an author. The story that he is writing with human beings in history is a beautiful story. Uh, Those who are self-righteous, those who think they're sufficient in themselves, the author of the story is giving judgment to. And those who come in dependence and need who humble themselves so that they receive the benefit, but his son, Jesus Christ, receives the glory, they receive blessing. That's a beautiful story that God is writing. Now, Jesus here isn't rummaging behind the curtain, as it were, to explain why some hardened sinners, we have to remember when we think about this story, that this is actually starting with fallen human beings. This isn't an explanation going back before the fall. It's starting with the fact that we all deserve judgment, right? And Jesus isn't going behind the curtain, as it were, to explain why do some hardened sinners come to the place where they actually have tender hearts and trust in God. Uh, For that, we have to go to places like John chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 2. That is discussed elsewhere in the Bible. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing here is explaining that the response of the crowd to him is not because of the lack of evidence they've seen. In fact, they've seen an extraordinary amount of evidence. The response of the crowd to him is because they were self-sufficient in their religion. They thought they were just fine on their own, and they were going to be the judge, not Jesus, of what they needed to know in order to follow God. You've got to ask, I mean, did they not know that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? I want to suggest that most of them did, at least formally. They probably taught their children that truth, right? God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. You need to know that. But they didn't teach their own hearts that. And and therefore, the question that raises for us this morning is, 
really not about them. Didn't they know that? The question it raises this morning, because this is passage is intended as a warning to us, is do we know that? Not, not do we just know that's in the Bible. I mean, that truth is taught in many places in the Old Testament, and it's quoted both by Peter and, and by James in the New Testament. Right? We know the Bible teaches that. But, but has that permeated our hearts so that we approach God, you know, not as those, hey, we're Calvinists, we've really gotten theology figured out. We are much, much better off than those Arminians are. Oh, that's a dangerous thing to be thinking. That sounds an awful lot like pride. Do, do you approach God from a standpoint of need and humility like a little child who says, Father, teach me. Father, help me. Father, feed me. This is intended as a warning to us and as an encouragement to us. Beloved, please do not approach the Lord as though you are one of his junior executives who's doing a really good job carrying out the plan he has for your life or for this world. We are not his junior executives. We are his children. Uh, we actually also need to guard ourselves from a misunderstanding in terms of the infants. The ESV says little children, but, but it really means very little children, infants here. Part of our problem is, is uh, we think of Connie Simonton, and uh, we think of this beautiful, precious, covenant child that the Lord has just brought into this world, and we can imagine that there's something in the child that draws God's attention. God really likes these infants, right? There's something beautiful that draws him. But that's wrong. See, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's not you become like an infant and that will attract God. You do something. Actually, the term infant here is a negative term. I don't mean it's a bad term. I mean it's defined in terms of what the infant can't do. The infant is helpless. The infant can't provide for himself. And Jesus is saying it is those who come to God as helpless, needy, dependent people, like infants, whom God blesses. Now, the reality is, is in terms of salvation, we are all, in, all infants. We are all helpless. None of us can actually do anything to attain our salvation. But Jesus is saying it's those who, by God's grace, recognize their infants, who recognize their need, who come to God singing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, it is to those and to those alone whom God imparts a true and saving knowledge of himself. Uh, this is the way the author of history is writing the story. And Jesus publicly praises his father for this. And this plan is in accord with the father's own good pleasure and that of Jesus as well. And therefore, this plan of salvation ought to be pleasing to us. And you may have noticed that I delayed commenting on the opening words of verse 25. Um, the verse begins with a time marker. At that time. But now that we understand the rest of this passage, I, I think we can understand the, the significance of those words as well. Uh, Jeffrey Gibbs puts it like this. Matthew is creating a close narrative link between verses 16 through 24. That's the passage right before this where Jesus seems to be failing, and this remarkable text that reveals that all was transpiring under the will and good pleasure of the Father and the Son. It is at that very time of seeming failure 
that Jesus' words reveal what is truly transpiring. I think that's right. right? In ways that cannot be seen, God is at work. God is opening the hearts of a remnant so that they will approach him with humility and with dependence. To such individuals, the Father is revealing who Jesus really is. To the majority of the Galileans, those who approach God with hardened hearts, those who approach God with self-sufficiency, thinking they have it figured out, and they're going to judge Jesus rather than letting Jesus judge them, to those the Father, he hardens them in a judicial hardening. All of the human beings are fully responsible, and the author of history is fully in charge. See, God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. Furthermore, Jesus is not at all embarrassed about the sovereignty of God like it's some difficult problem he has to explain away. Rather, he's celebrating it. He's praising his Father for the fact that he is orchestrating all these things according to the good pleasure of his own will. Well, this burst of praise for the Father, the Father who makes known the Son, is beautifully connected to praise for who Jesus actually is. Like this is really a very profound uh, one verse uh, that tells us some profound things about uh, Jesus Christ, what theologians like to call Christology. I've titled this section, Praise to the One Mediator Between God and Man. Uh, please look at verse 27 with me. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So step back with me for just a moment. Look at the bigger picture in Matthew. Right? Matthew chapter 1 begins with the messengers coming from John the Baptist, and they ask Jesus, are you the one that we are to look for, or ought we look to someone else? You ought to be keeping that question in mind for the next several chapters. Um, most of you are familiar that in uh, Matthew chapter 16, at Caesarea Philippi, uh, Peter's going to make this extraordinary profession of faith when Jesus presses them on, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The key question from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 16 is, who is Jesus? Right? That's the question you have to have in mind. That's the question that Matthew's answering for us. Who is Jesus? And in this verse, verse 27, Jesus himself gives us a very profound answer about who he is. Three things. This is all from verse 27. First, Jesus claims that the Father has put everything into his hands. Right? No, the Father has just proclaimed, I mean, so the Son has just proclaimed that the Father is Lord of heaven and earth, that the Father has absolute sovereignty. And Jesus is saying, me too. The Father has put everything into my hands. The same universal sovereignty ascribes to the Father, Jesus now claims for himself. Second, Jesus claims that he and he alone truly knows the Father by nature. 
Now, I trust you realize he's not trying to rule out the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit also knows the Father by nature. He's saying, compared to all those human teachers, you look at all the human beings on the face of the earth, I and I alone truly know the Father by nature. Whatever the sinner needs, Jesus has at his his disposal. All things have been put into his hands, and he knows the Father fully. Whatever the sinner needs, Jesus has at his disposal. He has all, and he knows all. Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. Third, Jesus claims that the only way that any other human being truly knows God the Father is through Jesus. That's what he's saying. In fact, Jesus goes further than this. He claims that the same sovereignty, uh, he claims for himself the same sovereignty that his Father has. Just as nobody knows the Son except those to whom the Father chooses to reveal him, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let me just unpack that a bit. Um, If you come to me with a plumbing problem, well, first of all, that means you don't know me very well. Uh, But if you come to me with a plumbing problem, uh, you're going to quickly discover that I know more about the plumbing achievements of ancient Rome than I do about how to fix a water heater. Okay, I don't have any practical knowledge that will be of any benefit to you at all. If you want to know about plumbing issues and get help, you need to talk to a skilled plumber, someone who knows what they're doing, not to a theologian. Oddly enough, while we all get that, people forget it, particularly in America, when it comes to God. We tend to think that anyone's opinion's fine, and somebody that has a PhD and wrote big papers on it, he must know a lot. But actually, the only way you can know God truly is to go to someone who knows God truly, and actually, exhaustively. So who could that be? Who can you go to who knows God exhaustively? Well, you know, the finite cannot contain the infinite. Even well-trained theologians don't know God exhaustively. The only person who knows God exhaustively, well, actually there are three of them, are the three persons of the Trinity. God knows himself. So God has to reveal himself to us for us to have true knowledge of who he is and what he is like. Now, thankfully, God has done that very thing. Uh, But this is one of the reasons why St. Jerome in the early church said ignorance of scripture is ignorance of God, right? You can try to figure out things about God by going and looking at Aristotle and arguments for God and all that sort of thing. Beloved, that's not going to get you very far at all. If you want to know who God is and what he is like, even before we talk about having a saving knowledge of him, which is what you really want, a fuller knowledge, you have to have that revealed to you from God. And Jesus says, the person who does that is me. You think about what an extraordinary claim that is. The person who does that is me. That's actually what um, scholars have come to talk about as being a thunderbolt, or sometimes a Johannine thunderbolt, because when you read the Gospel of John, John actually talks to us from the standpoint of we know in advance, it's the very beginning of his Gospel, that Jesus is God. And here he's going through the account of Jesus' life as he's talking to the crowd. And as Jesus says, if you want to know who God is, God has to reveal himself to you. 
And by the way, the one who can do that is me. I I and I alone truly know God the Father. And the only way that anyone else truly knows God the Father is if I choose to reveal the Father to him. Beloved, to know God, one must know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know God. Jesus is claiming to be the only mediator between God and man. And Jesus is very close to claiming that he is God himself. Um, The exhaustive sovereignty and perfect wisdom of both God the Father and God the Son are worthy of unending praise, but they're not yet good news for you. See, they're only good news. God's sovereignty is only good news if it also is sovereign grace. That if God uses his sovereignty to act on your behalf, praise be to God, that is precisely what he has done. The Father and the Son's sovereignty are good news for us because the Father and the Son have chosen sovereignly to save us They are good news for us because the only possible mediator between God and man calls us, calls you to himself. And thankfully, that is precisely what Jesus does. I've called this section the mediator's gracious invitation. Look at verses 28 through 30 with me. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Can you come to Jesus if he doesn't call you? No. No, you can't. Can you know God the Father if Jesus doesn't reveal him to you? No, you can't. But here is the good news. Immediately after celebrating his own and his father's absolute sovereignty over salvation, Jesus turns to us and says, come. Who does he say that to? All. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The external call of Christ to find your rest in him is coming to you even as I repeat his words this morning. Jesus is calling you to find your rest in him. You're responsible for how you will respond, but no matter how you respond, his promise is unshakably true. Everyone who comes to him finds rest in him. No exceptions. Well, the question is, are you weary and heavy laden? In fact, what is Jesus actually referring to there when he says weary and heavy laden? Zarty France points out, the toiling and loading which form the background of this invitation are not explained. They could just be metaphors for the difficulties that we have in life. I mean, you have a lot of things that weigh you down. But that's really not likely. When we turn to chapter 23 of Matthew, we discover that heavy, cumbersome burdens on people's shoulders is a metaphor for the legal and ethical demands made by the scribes and the Pharisees. You get that? I'm going to add that this language of yoke is important. The Jewish rabbis, going all the way back to the time of Jesus, and by the way, they still use this term today, speak of the yoke of the Torah. 
right? When you, when you want to commit yourself to being a real Jewish disciple, you take on the yoke of the Torah. And the important thing about that is by Torah, they don't just mean the written Torah. They also mean the oral law, that is the traditions of the fathers. Now, if you take on the word of God as God's gift to you, then that actually would lighten your burden. It's just like embracing Jesus Christ. The problem we see, and you see this regularly in the gospel accounts, is that many of the Jewish teachers and many of the Jewish people had taken the oral law and they built up all these rules, rules that you had to follow in order to become acceptable with God. Right? They weren't living out a gracious acceptance they had already received in the mediator. Instead, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And that creates a crushing burden that no one can truly bear. Jesus is saying, leave behind that way of trying to be Israel. Right? Because they're saying, look, that's how you become a good Jew. That's what the rabbis are saying. And Jesus is saying, leave behind that way of trying to be Israel and embrace me and my way of being the true Israel. As you become my disciple, you will paradoxically discover that your burden is light. I say paradox, I think we have to remember that. It is a paradox. See, Jesus is not offering us a watered-down version of the law. You know, the Pharisees had this really high standard, but you don't have to be that good. God doesn't care, right? The standard's really down here. Actually, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that Jesus accuses the Pharisees of having far too low a standard. Jesus says some pretty jarring things in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, he points out that the law always went all the way through to the heart. You couldn't just keep it externally. And so Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Um, suddenly those man-made rules about Sabbath keeping and ceremonial washings and everything don't seem like such a big burden. If you think about what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you know, the reason why people create those rules in the first place is at least in theory they can keep them. By yourself, you can never do this. But the point is Jesus doesn't leave us by ourselves. How then can Jesus say that to become his disciple is to take on a yoke that is light? Three things. First, Instead of acceptance with God being something you receive because you've followed the rules well enough, when you come to Jesus, you're accepted right away. Fully accepted. Permanently accepted. And therefore, what Jesus gives you his law, it's a guide now how as a true brother of Christ, a true sister of Christ, you are to live. You don't have to pursue discipleship as a way of becoming accepted with God. It is a wonderful blessing of the gospel that you are fully justified the moment that you first believe. This relieves us of the horrible burden 
of wondering whether or not we are going to be accepted and welcomed by God the Father on the day of judgment. Now, sadly, there are some, I would actually suggest there are many, but are true brothers and sisters in Christ who actually are still carrying this burden. They're, they're true brothers and sisters because they believe in Jesus. But they're carrying this burden because they've been exposed to bad theology, which robs them of assurance. And of course, most prominently, that's the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says that your acceptance with God is dependent upon your cooperation with his grace. Well, beloved, you know that your cooperation is always flawed. And so therefore, the Catholic Church quite rightly, if consistently, I want to say rightly, consistent with their theology says you can never have assurance of salvation in this life. You can never know that you will not commit a mortal sin and therefore go to hell uh, as a Roman Catholic. In fact, if uh, you assume that you have complete assurance that you're going to heaven when you die, that itself is a mortal sin in Roman Catholic theology. Now, you understand, of course, that because justification is by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone, and not because of getting a high score on a theology exam on justification, that your Roman Catholic brothers and sisters who trust in Jesus, some do, are every bit as saved as you are. What they lose with this false theology is not salvation, but assurance. And they end up carrying a burden that God does not want his children to bear. Now, beloved, if some of you feel that way this morning, if you are carrying that burden... And, and you don't know that you are fully accepted by God in Jesus Christ, please come and speak with me or one of the elders. We'd love to share with you the good news that your Father in heaven does not want you to carry that burden. Second, those who come to Jesus become his disciples not merely instructed in the truth. They are also empowered to both understand and put it into practice. Right? So this is not just, okay, I got my theology lined up. When you come to Jesus, you receive power from God to actually both understand the truth and to put it into practice. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me speak particularly to the young people. You old people should listen too. You still need to hear this. Let's speak particularly to the young people here this morning. Please fix this truth in your thinking. It is so easy when you're young and you hear the Bible being read to hear it as a bunch of rules that you need to do. And the more rules you hear, the harder the burden seems. But that is not God's plan for you at all. See, what God is doing is he loves you and he wants you to walk in this truth and therefore he empowers you to do it. Jesus loves you and therefore he died for your sins so that all your guilt has been put away. All of it. Every bad thing you do now, every bad thing you will ever do has already been forgiven because of Christ. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because Jesus and the Father love you, they have sent the Holy Spirit to be with you and to dwell in you. That is God, the Holy Spirit. And so as you pursue the Christian life, it is not a self-help project. Rather, it's about you turning over and over again back to God and praying and saying, God, help me. And God is with you. He is
is working in you both to will and to do. And because God is at work in you both to will and to do, even though God is calling you to do something great, right? God isn't watering down with standards. He's calling you to do something great to live for him. It actually becomes a light burden because God is the one who's going to carry that burden, right? So don't treat walking with Jesus as a self-help project. Pray, read the Bible, get help from your parents and your brothers and sisters in the church, right? God intends this for your good, not as a burden that will crush you. Third, the yoke of Christian discipleship is easy because of who Jesus is and what he is like. And we shouldn't miss that in this passage, right? Jesus says, the reason why it's it's a light burden when you come to me is because I am gentle and lowly. Your Savior is meek. You go back and read the the Beatitudes that Jesus says, I'm going to bless you for as these character traits get worked out in your life by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is all those things. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who is the Jesus that you are yoking yourself to? It is said of Jesus that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not put out. Beloved, that is your Savior. That is what your Lord is like. That is how Jesus gently treats all of his people in all of our weakness. As we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And perhaps I should add that while the thrust of Jesus' teaching in this passage is the spiritual rest that you enjoy in this present life, uh, it's worth adding that everybody who trusts in Jesus will enter into a perfect and complete Sabbath rest in the age to come. Uh, I should add, only those who trust in Jesus enter into this perfect Sabbath rest in the age to come. And that itself helps lighten our burdens in this world because we realize that they are but temporary, right? Light and momentary afflictions in light of the eternal weight of glory that God is laying up for those who trust him. Now, for those of you who come, have come to clearly embrace Jesus Christ and seek to be his disciple, I think the application is straightforward. Uh, you ought to praise God. You ought to praise God for his sovereign grace in your life. You also ought to remind yourself that all the knowledge that you have of God that is true, and all the blessings you have from God, they come to you in Christ and in Christ alone. For there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Let me say something to the rest of you who have not yet fully affirmed your allegiance to Jesus. You've had the privilege, many of you, of being raised in the Christian church. You've heard God's word. You sing God's praises and you pray. But you have not yet fully committed yourself that you are going to be Jesus' disciple. My dear friends, there is only one person in the entire universe who can put away all your sin and make you whiter than snow. There is only one person in the entire universe who can cause you to know God fully. And truly, 
in a saving way. There is only one person in the entire universe where you can find eternal life in all its abundance. And that person is Jesus Christ. And amazingly, right now, this morning, this Jesus is calling to you. Jesus is calling to you and saying, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My dear friends, by the grace of God, Jesus is calling you. Why not come today? Amen.